The European Championship ends with ugly scenes at Wembley. People on these stairs are meant to be in the seats, but you've got tailgaters in the seats. We'll bring you the stories from inside the unrest as ticketless fans force their way into the final. There were thugs basically trying to storm the gates. Um, there was no policing of people coming up the gate one. So one guy, one guy who said, look, you know, you haven't got a ticket, you should go, got elbowed in the face. Yeah, it's a horrible atmosphere. On Sports Unlocked, the fallout from shameful scenes as England lost to Italy, the racist abuse faced by England players and where this all leaves the English-led bid to host the 2030 World Cup. We will also, though, celebrate Italy's triumph. They're the new European champions. Hello and welcome to the podcast delving deeper behind the sports news headlines. This is a Sport Unlocked analysing the fallout from the end of the European Championship. There was Italy's triumph, but it's a final that will also be remembered for those ugly scenes involving England fans. I'm Rob Harris from the Associated Press and at Wembley in the thick of it with me was Tarek Panja from the New York Times. And of course, we're joined on the pod by Martin Ziegler from the Times, who we saw at Wembley as well during the semi-finals. Welcome all. It's certainly a lot to talk through in this week's episode. Hi, Rob. Hi, Tariq. Good to be with you. Yes, I mean, uh, a European Championships, which was probably one of the most complicated tournaments ever uh, undertaken. Um, but actually, the biggest problems are very much local issues, weren't they, at Wembley um, with, with the final and some really, actually, some serious questions to answer as a result of that, I think, Tariq. Yeah, real shocking scenes, really. And you got the sense that some of it might have been predictable. Real febrile atmosphere there from Wembley Way, that big thoroughfare that goes from the Wembley Park Underground Station to the pretty much the entrance of, of Wembley Stadium itself. About 15-minute 15, 15 walk in a straight line. That would give uh, you the idea of, um, people have not been to Wembley, the idea of how big that boulevard is. Absolutely crammed full of supporters, both with tickets and without tickets, and drinking heavily from from the morning. Uh, it was an eight o'clock kickoff, and sadly, predictably, things got a little out of control. Maybe a bit more than a little out of control. The stadium, the game, will be remembered for things that happened off the field. There was a two or three, maybe even more attempts of stampeding fans gaining entry into the stadium, breaking gates, breaking doors, injuring themselves and creating a real health hazard there. The attendance was on paper, this extended 66,500 because of the UEFA agreement with the British government. But if you were there... It was far more than that. There were people spinning out the aisles. There were certain areas, particularly behind the goals, that looked quite dangerous with people really crammed in cheek by jowl. Um, and this is in a country that has had its, you know, a history, sad history of some disasters in in in, in their football stadiums. It was really troubling. Rob, how did you find it? Yeah, I mean, it seems to be something that's actually been brewing over the course of the Euros that... Um... We've seen very normal scenes, normal scenes that perhaps shouldn't be existing at the moment under the ongoing coronavirus restrictions, which are being phased out in the next week or so. But we've seen thousands of fans gathering near Wembley by the arena, close to uh, the main entrances. And 
Wembley is a very different place from when it first opened in 2007. It's still seen as the desired venue of choice for organizations like UEFA for games, but it's so crowded, isn't it? The area around the stadium now, there aren't the vast open spaces that allow for crowd control, even for large barriers. There's the apartment blocks, the retail outlet that is right up close to the Wembley entrance. So it was always striking to me, how would they cope with major tournament infrastructure? And as we saw with the final, when fans decided they want to try to find a way in, England fans, the security wasn't very significant. We didn't get the high fences that we've seen at tournaments in recent years. It was a pretty weak front line, just stewards. And uh, I think in part, because fans knew there was more than 20,000 empty seats because of the pandemic restrictions on the crowd at Wembley, it probably gave that incentive just to try to find a way in to get a seat. When England are playing their first men's final for 55 years, you can sort of see the incentive. And of course, there is that connection with history. The 1923 FA Cup final, the first game at Wembley, the Whitehorse final, known because of the policing in terms of the search of fans trying to get in to see the occasion. So, you know, it's not something unique to these modern times, but it sensed and seemed to me that actually during these Euros, why the police didn't do something to prevent big crowds building right close to the entrance in the open space by the uh, arena. And some fans were disgusted by what they witnessed and Tarek heard from some of them. Basically, I've seen... Uh... Entering here, there were there were thugs basically trying to storm the gates. Um, there was no policing of people coming up the gate one, so there was no COVID. Uh, no one's checked my COVID test. Um, when we were in here, there were people standing in the aisles with tickets, sitting in people's other people's seats. People have left, and then there was violence. What sort of violence did you see? So, so one guy, one guy who said, "Look, you know, you haven't got a ticket. You should go." Got an elbowed in the and face. He's been there for forty-five minutes with everybody going. We can't. You can't get rid of them. He was so drunk, and nobody did anything. Are you not going to stay for the rest? No, of them? no, I'm gone. Well, well, why are you leaving? I, I, I just think, you know, a sporting occasion like this is about. Um, enjoy, enjoyment and the atmosphere. It's not about violence. Oh, sorry, it's, it's sorry. violence. I'm sorry, it is a horrible. You can just hear in his voice how crestfallen, how depressed, how despondent he was, and, and his friend who was with him. These were two men in their early sixties, huge sports fans. That they wouldn't have been more than maybe five or six years old if that when England won the World Cup. This was a huge moment for them, like for everyone else. They were just so, so sad. They just didn't want to be there anymore. They didn't care who won or who lost the game. The entire evening had been destroyed. And and that's just a couple of people I bumped into around this sort of 60-minute mark. And you hear stories of other other fans, particularly those with children who, who who left the stadium as well. It just leaves such a such a nasty taste for everyone. Because win or lose, that, that probably is the biggest occasion many people would have ever been to. Sad it had to end that way. Yeah, and it, I, I mean, actually, it, it includes some people who are caught up in the, in the in the trouble. Um, the son of the Italy coach Robert Mancini, um, he had to watch the first half actually sitting on the steps of, of rather than uh, in the in the stadium. Um, families of England players were um, caught up. And they had to, they had to actually run away because some of the fans who who stormed through one of the gates. Um, punching and kicking and they were terif- terrified apparently. UEFA 
on Tuesday did appoint an ethics and disciplinary investigator to conduct a wider investigation into all the actions of fans inside and outside Wembley at the final. They have already levelled some charges at the English FA. That's over the pitch invasion, objects being thrown, Italy's national anthem being jeered and fireworks being set off. And these are investigations into a series of events that we have witnessed and have a real insight into. Interesting. I mean, Tarek, you you actually went to one of the semi-finals um, amongst the supporters, and you you actually tweeted um, that there were more people uh, in the stadium than there should be because people had gained access illegally. Um, I mean, when this was put to the authorities, actually the next day. They were insistent it couldn't have happened. So I think there was fair warning, wasn't there, that the, the trouble was brewing like this. And yet, you know, seeing some of the videos, of the, the, the police seemed nowhere, the stewards are outnumbered, the fencing was absolutely pathetic in terms of what was needed. People were on the floor, uh, um, being stamped on as people running over them. I, I mean, not surprisingly, there's, there's people are saying there's going to be a big review of what happened, but it does feel that you know the warnings were there, uh, and from you, Tom. Yeah, yeah, Ziggs. You know, they, they were surprised with the reaction. There are people who say, "Oh, well, I didn't see anything like that." But the, the, so you sometimes have to like question your own sanity when people are denying something that you've 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 witnessed and you've experienced. And that was the Danish game was very instructive. Like for me, you know, obviously. We, the three of us have a privilege mostly of when we attend major events of having um, going to the press area and the access is is much easier. Uh, the mag and bag, et cetera, that we go through is different to, to, to everybody else. However, doing this was really, really interesting. First of all, there was the COVID checks that are supposed to take place for this particular tournament. Either, you know, you've got your vaccination proof or you've had a lateral flow test but there were so many people rushing in trying to get into the stadium. The, the the infrastructure, the people could not manage to check everyone. People were flowing in. The next thing that happened is these tickets for, for the um, Euros, they're on your telephone, on your smartphones, and you're supposed to sort of wave them at an electronic turnstile that isn't manned by an operator. And and then if you've got a ticket, the, the, the turnstile opens and you go through. The thing I saw is that with one ticket, two or three people would surge through at the same time. And this was, uh, again, to remind everyone, the Danish game on the Wednesday. After that, there's supposed to be a search. And if, if a steward has seen people do anything like that, they're supposed to sort of question them a bit. The chap in front of me, he clearly <laughs> didn't have a ticket. The steward challenged him and he just ran away. And it was so busy in there that the Poor steward. Let's just give everyone an idea of these stewards as well. These aren't professional security consultants or anything like that. These are people on largely minimum wage, about nine pounds an hour, a bit more than minimum wage, maybe nine to eleven pounds, and they're not trained for some of this stuff. That the scale it was. Then once you get into the stadium, you'll find there could be three or four burly guys or whoever in the area that you're supposed to be sitting in, and you know if you. If you ask them, you can't challenge them to say, look, these are your seats. They are going to want to stay there. And there wasn't. And that was the experience of Wednesday. People crammed in. Well, let's take a listen to what happened when you caught up with one of the stewards at Wembley on Sunday as all the mayhem was unfolding. No one's been able to move. People are basically having it like... 
people on these stairs are meant to be in the seats, but you've got tailgaters in the seats. So it does come back to the question about how should big games be secured? Should they be using stewards? Should there be more police? We see volunteers who are doing, obviously, the jobs for nothing, yet they're key to the security and safety of these events. Do they need more professional security people to be uh, policing stadiums like this at a big tournament? I don't think you need that necessarily. Um, I, I don't think it's financially viable in, in, many, in many respects. I do think that the police... I mean, you know, when I was at the Italy-Spain semi-final, there were van loads of police like sitting in their vans waiting for any uh, to be called into any action, I guess, as a, some sort of reserve force if there's any any trouble. What you really needed was like police manning the entrances and like helping the stewards and preventing this happening. Um, I think they're going to have to look at that seriously if they're going to hold major events at Wembley. Um, which threatened to have the same sort of thing here because what people will do with stewards they won't do if the police are there that's absolutely for sure yeah one of the other things that they got away with it slightly is rob alluded to it that the capacity was about twenty-five thousand less than wembley can hold and that that gives you a bit of wriggle room but if and that still meant when those people surged in it was tight, but not in some areas. There was space to move around. Imagine that stadium was at capacity and this happened. You're looking at potentially a disaster. I mean, talking to other people working at that stadium, they were using words like crush, like fans being boxed in, like people falling down and their shoes coming off, being unable to move. Now, that has some horrible connotations with football in the United Kingdom, doesn't it, guys? Yeah, and um, we thought some of these days were behind us, modern stadiums, all-seater, and an established way of security. But it shows, actually, perhaps when you get such a huge crowd like that for an occasion of the type England has not witnessed for 55 years, that some of the the bad practices, the dangers will, will return. Just seemed like the mood was also a bit nasty, wasn't it? Because the the, the, the the drinking, um, there was open drug use as well. People were just riled up. Um, it was different outside the stadium on on Sunday, perhaps compared to some of the other days. It just seemed there was a lot more people out for for trouble as well from 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 the get go, didn't it? And you listen to some of the songs and a lot of them are about drinking or drug use. You know, the Harry Maguire song There's also Don't Take Me Home with lyrics inserted um, about, well, sniff all your gear. And, you know, it, it does reflect a certain fan culture, doesn't it? There, perhaps that's why, actually, there is such an embrace of Sweet Caroline over recent weeks in the stadium. It's, it is actually more of a joyful sort of family experience of a song, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's always been a problem for for England. Um, you know, if you're going back decades, you know, the, 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 it's always been a sort of uh, had an attraction for a certain sort of um, right wing supporter. You know, no surrender songs. I mean, it's amazing. You know, more than twenty years after the uh, Good Friday Peace Agreement, we're still having people singing No Surrender to the IRA. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Who are these people <laughs> singing these and why? But it's just, to me, it's just it's just a, 
a throwback to this culture which people are reluctant to to let go of or they you know the, the new breed want to embrace because they think it's macho or something like that but um and it probably doesn't help the whole sort of brexit and culture wars um issues that we've had that that's also maybe making people a bit more radicalized and and contributing in a way to this sort of slightly nasty atmosphere that there was yeah well rob and i were commuting to one of the semi-finals together and Again, you mentioned anti-IRA lyrics in some of these chants. We we were on a train, a carriage, and it was anti-German stuff harking back to World War Two. And, you know, it's got nothing to do with any of this. This is what I find very strange. Like, is it is it really impossible to support your team in a full-throated way, give them all the support they need without being nasty about the opponents or, or whoever else you want to be nasty about. You can still create a massive atmosphere inside the stadium. Give give your team all the advantages that brings without being total morons. Well, of course, the song you're referring to, of course, was 10 German Bombers, which is still sung about uh, Nazi Germany in World War II after uh, so many years. And obviously, we've had England and Gareth Southgate condemning England fans throughout this tournament really started with them condemning the fans when they were booing players taking a knee we also had it when fans started to boo opposition anthems there was warnings particularly ahead of the Germany game to respect the opposition as well I mean these have been very different games at Wembley where England have played um, six out of their seven games because of the structure of the tournament very different because of course England is dominating the stands because away fans can't come in but then I sat down with some other journalists at St. George's Park ahead of the final with Gareth Southgate. And he did cause a bit of surprise with some of his comments when he was asked about what England meant to him and his sense of nationality. When he talked about, and a quote, people have tried to invade us and we've had the courage to hold that back. You can't hide that some of the energy in the stadium against Germany was because of that. What did you make of those comments coming ahead of the final? I mean... I think it's all that you know. There, there is a, a. I think people do think back of you know their grandparents. Um, you know, people of a certain generation think their grandparents fought in the war, and then that was a um, you know, a really important important part of their lives growing up, and they kind of gives them some sort of national identity. Um, so maybe that's what he was harking back to Southgate. But I think it's quite what's quite interesting is like. If you look at European football, Italy, Spain, France, most of the sort of ultra hooligan element is related to clubs. They don't. It's not so much related to the to to the national teams. It's different with England. In in England, it's it's not so much related to clubs anymore. It used to be, but it's it's now much more centered on the national team. I think. So I think that's why we're seeing these issues around England. Um, and you, perhaps you don't get them in in those other countries, but you perhaps do in Eastern Europe, um, where it is much more focused on national national uh, nationalistic politics, perhaps. And we have obviously had a lot of concern about the race debut sent to the England players who missed the penalties in the shootout: Jaden Sancho, Marcus Rashford, and Bakaya Saka. A familiar thing we've covered across the pod is the inaction the 
lack of determination, perhaps, of the social media firms to try to eradicate this abuse. Gareth Southgate on Monday did refer to actually maybe some of this does come from abroad and we're not too sure of the identity of some of the abusers. Yeah, that's that's correct. It does come from abroad. But let, just to get before we go on to that social media stuff, it's so ingrained. It's certainly not. If you're for me, I'm I'm. I'm a person of colour, I guess, and you're sitting there in a penalty shootout, right, and you're watching it and you're thinking, and I hate to say this, but is what I was thinking, please don't let it be all the black guys who are going to miss this penalty because they're going to, you just know, and that's the sad thing about all this, it's so inevitable, and that's, it's tragic really, isn't it, that you know that those guys are going to miss the penalties and they're going to get it worse than if someone else was, you just know it, and, and sadly three of these guys missed a penalty, um, and predictably, this awful stuff, just sort of gutter nonsense starts pouring out almost immediately, almost with glee by some of the people who are typing this stuff anonymously behind God knows what username, and off it goes. And we have this round of uh, condemnation from across the board. Look, we've been doing this um, podcast since, well, episode 26 now, and I think we've talked about this a couple of times we had the um, official from the PFA on as well, talking about these issues. And we're just going to go round and round in, in, in circles, sadly. And this was a biggest high point, like you say, a massive game, 55 years, doesn't get bigger than this. And this is what we're talking about. Well, we did have Boris Johnson condemning the uh, abuse sent to the England players. We did have Pretty Patel condemning the racism as well targeted at them and we had the uh, Labour deputy leader Angela Rayner saying that um, actually Boris Johnson and Priti Patel are like arsonists complaining about a fire they poured the petrol on total hypocrites because of course they earlier in the tournament didn't really condemn England fans for booing taking knee in fact um, Priti Patel said it was up to the fans what to do she also called it gesture politics taking a knee well Tyrone Mings as well has spoken out too. He's not accepted at all the comments of uh, Boris Johnson and particularly Pretty Patel. He retweeted Pretty Patel's comments saying she, she was disgusted about what she called vile race abuse on social media. Uh, Tyrone Mings said, you don't get to stoke the fire at the beginning of the tournament by labelling our anti-racism message as gesture politics and then pretend to be disgusted when the very thing we're campaigning against happens. Yeah. I mean, that was a really strong post by Tyrone Mings. Um, quite unusual, isn't it, for a footballer to get directly involved in um, a, a really uh, against a politician like that, but um, increasingly so, and, and, and good thing too. Uh, we, we had Tracy Crouch, the former sports minister, on the, the other day talking about the taking the knee and the reaction of her, some of her Conservative colleagues, saying she just could not understand um, why they were taking this position and she thought that they just didn't get it and clearly they don't um, and Tyrone Ming's absolutely right to call this out because you can't you can't say one thing one week and then two weeks later saying oh you're disgusted about it because I mean that's exactly why people have been taking the knee because they are being um, hit with this torrent of racist abuse and I mean I thought the same Tarek and I just about the fact that three black players all going to miss and I thought oh, you know that is just going to be um, uh, open season for these attention seekers 
racists, whatever they are. I mean, you know, whatever motivates them. Um, it, it, it's just, it's it's an opportunity, isn't it? Uh, and it's something which you know, the social media platforms have to deal with. But I think there are sort of wider societal issues too, as well. Uh, and the international element is something um, which I think. Again, the social media platforms perhaps have to concentrate on um, more than anybody else because if you've got somebody sitting in Russia or America deciding they they want to target a, a, an English player, it's very difficult for um, them to face action from the uh, the British authorities, isn't it? Well, it's impossible. You're, you're right. Yeah, there, there was actually a case um, recently where the Premier League took action against um, successfully prosecuted or helped prosecute an individual in Singapore who sent racial abuse to the Brighton striker, Neil Mope. Um, again, that, but it's hard, isn't it? You think how many thousands of messages, etc., wherever they're coming from. It's like, say, it's not only a UK problem, but just going back to Tyrone Mings for a second, it just shows you how hurt he is as an individual. He's a man. He's a, yes, he's a football player. Yes, he's a Aston Villa stalwart England player, etc. But he's a he's a human being, and he's probably felt the effects of this kind of dog whistle politics. He's on. He's one of the people. Him and the, his teammates, they're the ones who open their social media feeds and have to see it. You can say, "Well, ignore it." It's easy to say if you don't get it. Um, and they're the ones who who might get it in the street as well, and they've they've, they've got every right to to come back at people they think are stoking this stuff, whether it's a government minister or anyone else. Brave may be, but it's correct. This is a this is a man who clearly feels that people are sowing these dangerous seeds of division in this country, and he's calling them out. Good luck to him. And very much we've seen the players at odds with the values they're extolling with those of um, some of their fans. And it's something that I actually asked Gareth Southgate about on Monday. Does it frustrate you and are you reflecting on how to tackle how you've got players who've generated such pride from the country during these last few weeks, but you're still having to deal and address the fact there are fans who are being disrespectful, offensive and violent and and not the image that you want and certainly completely counter to the image that the, the players have presented? Yeah, look, we, I mean, we can't control that. Um... We can only set the example that we believe we should and uh, represent the country in the way that we feel um, you should when you're representing England. And everybody has to remember when they support the team that they also represent England and uh, should represent what we stand for. So um, I think the, the players have done that brilliantly. and. Um, we, we can only continue to try to affect the things that we can, but we have, I think, had a positive effect on lots of areas of society, but, but we can't affect everything. There, other people have responsibilities in those areas, and, uh, um, you know, we, we've all got to work collectively to, to constantly improve those things. Interesting that by Southgate. Um, and just to say, clearly Tyrone Mings's, um actions have really resonated because... I mean, he's had something like half a million people on, on Twitter have replied or quoted or liked that uh, that tweet from him, which is, I mean, absolutely unprecedented, I think, that sort of reaction. 
So maybe you know what his message he's putting out there is having a really strong effect. Let's hope so. And the FA really has encouraged and given the space for players to speak out on political and social issues during this tournament and in recent years in a way that they didn't perhaps in years gone by and would put a sort of shield and sort of discourage them from saying anything controversial at all, particularly while on England duty. Yeah, and I suppose the environment, um, the time we live in helps with that as well. The, 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 the platforms that we're disparaging are also opportunities for these guys to talk directly to the public in ways that previous players, high-profile figures weren't able to do before and they've embraced them fully uh, to to speak up for their causes. Marcus Rashford has been perhaps the exemplar of this, but the others are there too. Raheem Sterling has spoken up very eloquently at times over, over issues that he's concerned about, particularly around racism. So, yeah, um, back to back to the fallout of what happened on on Sunday night. This is a really awful moment for England to be pushing a World Cup bid with the other home nations, the Republic of Ireland. Isn't it, guys? It's, it's funny because it's like it, it, it sort of goes up and down the, the England and Ireland World Cup bid. So you'd say at the sort of start of the year, if they they you know they were sort of behind Spain, Portugal. Then they sort of leapt up in, in a reckoning um, after the the Super League debacle because in the Spanish FAs basically in in um, to to Barcelona and Real Madrid um, and UEFA much more in favour of of um, a British and Irish bid I, I would say um, and then there was a bit of around the Champions League final they weren't able to get the exemption so that went to Portugal that was back in their favour then with the Euro 2020 climax the giving the exemptions to the UEFA VIPs now that was good for the British and Irish bid and and now this again um, you know showing that they're you know they're having these problems with, with the actual final itself so it, 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 I think it, there's so much up and down. You can't actually, you can't take one incident or one thing in isolation. I think it's um, it's a really, really difficult one to call. Um, be, I, I just think it's going to be one of the most interesting sports news stories of the next couple of years because there is, um, there both the, the what I mean, UEFA made it clear they want one European bid. So it's either going to be Britain and Ireland or Spain and Portugal. And both of them have their pluses and their minuses. And it's going to be absolutely intriguing to see which way it goes. Perhaps what's interesting is we're seeing Boris Johnson particularly try to embrace the bid and promote the bid. Yet, obviously, we've got players like Tyra Mings going against the government. What would happen if there was some sort of reception at some point, holding down the street to celebrate reaching the finals after they've all come back from their holidays? We've seen during the Trump administration that players from sports teams didn't necessarily want to go to the White House sometimes. How much would some of these England players want to be associated with this government if it was part of a sort of wider bid? It's probably helped the fact that it is being pursued by the home nations along with Ireland. So it actually perhaps takes away from just being, say, Boris Johnson at the focal point of it. But it could be the case of England actually needing the other nations in the British Isles to um, to help soften the image. And particularly as they're trying to 
rebuild from some of the damage caused by these violent scenes at the uh, Euro 2020 final? Yeah, absolutely. I think some of the fans of other countries, Welsh, the Scots particularly, you know, they were kind of celebrated for 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 some of the joy they they brought to to the tournament. Maybe maybe you can push push that. But the the other thing that I, I, I I'm concerned about was one of the kind of benefits or one of the plus points of the British beard is that it's this sense that everyone is welcome here. It's a very multicultural country. But then you think about some of the things we've seen, some of the language towards people of colour, and then even the songs towards opponents. You know, Rob, the other day, we're going towards... Wembley Stadium for the for the final and you see Italian fans and then you hear chants that are just anti-Italian. Nothing They were bizarre. It was like chanting against Taglatelli, Lamborghinis, yeah, and, and things like that. I mean we hadn't heard them before. And what was in what was interesting was the fact they seemed to spread across London wherever they, they were. It's like wildfire, just being offensive. These were the Italians we were talking about, and it was as awful as it was. It just made my mind think what what if this is another country where some of the language would be more vitriolic, perhaps racist? And I remember uh, when England had a, a, a series of playing against Turkey, they just kept being drawn together in the mid-2000s for European qualifiers or World Cup qualifiers. And um, I, I lived near Wembley at, at the time. And my parents lived near there. And you will be on the tube on, on a match night going towards Wembley Stadium and the area I grew up in, very multicultural, uh, lots of Asian and black families in that in that neighbourhood. And you'll see a train carriage shaking with football fans chanting things like, I'd rather be a Paki than a Turk. And it really hurt, you know, because this is our football team as well. But then you think, well, is it? if these guys are using you as the lowest of the low as a comparison for this ridiculous chant for, for, for Turkey. And, you know, it does, this, this is what a lot of people are thinking about because the country is diverse, but you have to feel, are we, are we all included? And then when you think about the players, these guys are, are talking about social justice. The, some of them are clearly from minority backgrounds. It must be really hard for them to think, are, are we in common cause with these fans? Are they, what are they supporting? Because they're not supporting me, maybe. They'd rather, some of them might be thinking, they'd rather I'm not here. Raheem Sterling, perhaps England's player of the tournament. Um, how, how would he feel with, with, with kind of the level of racism around, around the England team? And again, when you're trying to do a bid and you're trying to embrace the world, why would the world want to come to you? And it's almost like the fans are happy enough to celebrate the team's success when a player like Sterling is delivering for them and giving them the results that they then can celebrate and go in the seats, streets and be boisterous. But actually, they'll turn on them if there's something that they do they don't like. So it's very much a uh, a transactional relationship, isn't it, between the fans and the uh, the players when it should actually be a harmonious one and a, and a close bond as part of a united mission. Going back to that, uh, I, I mean that, that those Turkey matches. I remember actually UEFA actually um, sanctioned England for that. I think they were played at Sunderland, um, 
and they sanctioned England after fans were chanting that. Uh, so it is definitely something which has been around for a long time. I mean, I, I take your point, Tariq, but I do actually think, you know, if you look at, at, at for example, um, you know, Spain's racist racial attitudes, I mean, it's not that long ago that black players playing in Spain were, were regularly booed in the stadiums in a way that you you actually don't see in in England, um, and so I, I I mean I, I I don't I don't think that we are behind the Spanish in that. In fact, I'd say in England there's a a strong argument that actually in in terms of multiculturalism we're we're ahead of Spain. So. Um, I, I know, I know when when you you're feeling sort of like incredulous about you know this the, the sort of responses we have, and you think that you know it, it's a disaster. It is, but it doesn't necessarily mean um, that we are sort of you know, the the worst in Europe and, and worse than our, our, our European um, rivals for the World Cup. It, it's just. You know, it's just that it's just happened and it's very raw. And yes, there has been criticism from the likes of Raheem Sterling about media coverage of black players in particular over the years. But I think we would say, particularly now, that actually these issues of racism, racial injustice, particularly in football, do actually get covered wider in our media in England than perhaps we see in some other European countries where it isn't treated as seriously either by the sports leaders and probably in reality some of our media colleagues in in some other parts of Europe yeah that's that's a really good point Rob the the level of scrutiny on on these issues from from media in this country is far higher than you would see perhaps um, anywhere else in Europe but at the same time there are sections of the British media that have helped to whip up some of this sentiment that we're seeing unleashed on the terraces uh with with England during this tournament and, and elsewhere so it's it's a bit of um Yes, on the one hand, we we scrutinise or British media scrutinises this issue perhaps more than um, media elsewhere. But it'd be hard to it'd be wrong, in fact, to say that they haven't had a hand in in some sense stoking up some of the some of the feelings. And in fact, of course, the press boxes at these England games, often at England press conferences, are very white male dominated as well because there is a, a diversity issue in the uh, sports media. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, ironically, one of the uh, one of the things which goes against a, a British and Irish bid winning support in Europe is that a lot of the Eastern European countries are fed up but with, the, with the, the English and the English media um, labelling them as racist, like Bulgaria, for example, and Montenegro. Um, they feel that they're unfairly um, given this tag, and a lot of it is, is the English media or the English FA or English campaigners. It's their fault. So, I, it, interestingly, um, the fact that there is such a strong focus on anti-racism in this country is also a potential negative. And of course, we're only 16 months or so away from potentially thousands of England fans flying out to Qatar for a World Cup there, a first World Cup in the Middle East, a different culture where England fans have never gathered before in uh, in such numbers. We did have a few Liverpool fans going out to Doha for the Club World Cup in 2019. But it is a potential area of concern given some of the behaviour of fans. Yeah, I mean, it'd be really interesting to see how that works out because, I mean, Qatar 
the, the World Cup there is not spread across the country as as we're used to. This is effectively a World Cup taking place in one city. Um, and if you're going to have like um, tens of thousands of fans of all different um, parts of the world all coming together, some being on the, the slightly um, uh, hooliganistic side of the fence, then it's potential for some trouble. But I imagine that um, maybe Qatar is not the sort of place you want to step out of line. No, it, it's going to be very tight, like you say as well. It's um, about the size of Yorkshire, I think, Zeke's, where, where, you, where, you're, where you're based. Imagine um, the entire World Cup taking place there and all the supporters all in that place at one time. That It's a bit of a, a powder keg, potentially, where, I don't know, a, a match, a fraught match or a, a draw that puts two very antagonistic rivals potentially off the field together what may that bring it's it's um something that the qataris and fifa have had i suppose a long time to think about given that it's been will be 12 years from that fateful day when set blatter opened the envelope and and, and plucked out qatar so that they probably know what's coming but even when you know what's coming it might be harder to deal with in, in real time, as maybe the fellows at Wembley found out. Of course, Italy will be going to Qatar as European champions, having failed to qualify for the last World Cup. Perhaps in all this, we should just reflect slightly on Italy's own triumph, uh, capping a now a 34-match unbeaten run by being uh, crowned European champions for the second time. Yeah, I mean, great from um, Roberto Mancini to get this team of... Um, not the, the interesting thing about it, it's a team of, of non-superstars and he's got them very much being a sum of the parts rather than these star players. Um, you, you don't have a Ronaldo, you don't have a um, Messi or you don't even have a Harry Kane. You just have a conglomerate of players all playing extremely well and um, the system works excellently. And so actually Mancini is probably the hero of this team. And as we reflect on the end of this unit, European Championship stayed in 11 different uh, countries across Europe. Tarek, what are your memories of the event? From a football point of view, it was really exciting. There were so many goals, so many good goals as well. There was Patrick Schick. I was in Glasgow for Scotland's first game. It was a, a damp squib as far as they were concerned, but it was really brightened up with Patrick Schick scoring from pretty much the halfway line. And we've seen goals galore pouring in throughout the tournament. There have been shocks, etc. Yeah, in general, from a football point of view, it was it was an excellent tournament. We had kind of remarkable news stories as well, starting with Ericsson having a cardiac arrest. I mean, just it feels like years ago now when you when you go back to this. It's just been a, an insane tournament at that level. And we had obviously the disastrous handling of the um, situation over pride by UEFA. And, you know, I must say that it did end for me with the correct winner. Italy really lit the tournament up. For me, they were not in the front rank as favourites despite that unbeaten run. Martin said they were more than the sum of his parts, and I think he's dead right. That team really played like a team and, and won like a team. It was nice to see them do that, and it was a real bear pit. They did it in at Wembley Stadium on, on Sunday night. 
Uh, and an interesting story you've uh, you did, Rob, about the fact that UEFA now considering expanding it from twenty four to thirty two teams. That's like thirty two of the fifty five UEFA nations. I mean, it's good in a way to sort of clean a tournament, but thirty two out of the fifty five, the qualifying tournament tournament then becomes a big problem. Yeah, it looks like they'd have to overhaul qualifying completely, which obviously ties in the fact that they're looking at a new international calendar after twenty twenty four. Anyway, and qualifying at the moment does create those one-sided games that aren't even particularly appealing to the sponsors and the TV companies anyway. So maybe something like the Nations League ultimately feeds into uh, the qualification for the Euros. And that's a way of uh, avoiding some of the less meaningful games in the calendar and creating more competitive uh, games. One thing a 32-team Euros will do, it prevent that sort of third-place team in each of the groups um, waiting to see if they get one of those best spots to also go through with the top two from each group. So it might sort of smooth things out, but uh, could be a good vote winner as well if uh, um, when when Alexander Sheffrin is seeking re-election, having found a way helping the uh, the smaller nations more. Of course, Gianni Infantino, the FIFA president, was at Wembley for the European Championship final and he'd flown straight in from Brazil, where, not to forget, there was the Copa America final too with Argentina ending there. 28-year title drought. Great sporting story. Argentina ends its its title drought, and so does somebody else. Lionel Messi, finally, after all this anguish, after the almost victory at the 2014 World Cup inside the same Maracanã stadium, he manages to win a title with Argentina. Sadly, there were very few fans there. I think only a handful, maybe a couple of hundred from from each side in that cavernous stadium. But the way he fell to his knees and and tears of joy just shows you how much it meant to him and how much some of these national team events mean to players who play for them. Well, that's an uplifting way to bring a draw to an episode when we've had to really reflect on some of the uglier sides of football. And what a busy summer it is. We've still got the Olympics to come, but that wraps up the Copa America and the Euros with the investigations ongoing into the fallout from the violence at Wembley. Well, in the midst of it all, it was great to see you guys at Wembley at points in the last week of the Euros and good to reflect on everything that's been going on at the tournament. Very good, guys. Have a good week. Thank you. Absolutely. And if any of you listeners have got any thoughts on episode 26 of Sport Unlock, we're always grateful to receive them. You can message us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Sport Unlot. We're on email at sportonlotpod at gmail.com. And most importantly, we're really grateful if you could rate, review, and subscribe to us on whatever platform you get your pods on. And then we'll automatically drop into your feeds whenever there is a new episode, especially if it's sort of slightly out of sync like this week. But we've had a lot to reflect on, and we hope you enjoy the sports viewing in the days ahead. And Speak to you soon. Goodbye for now.